Mr. Matthew Pleasy, in this course, this instructional of returning to the sacred, and then we're trying to discover how do we get there? How do we recapture what was lost? How do we how do we explain why we lost it so fast and um and how do we recapture it? How when it comes to fasting, how would you tie fasting into that sense of the sacred? Well, fasting, you know, has been practiced since the very early church. Uh, fasting has really underscored our life as Catholics. Um, if you look back to how the apostles practiced fasting, we have historical records to confirm they instituted the weekly devotional fast. So Wednesdays, Fridays, and in some places, Saturdays too. And that was part of life. But in addition to that, they instituted very early on the Lenten fast, which initially was just a really a period of time preparation for catechumens before receiving sacraments at Easter. And it very quickly spread to all the faithful. They wanted to take part in the fast. That's really why Lent spread very early on in the apostolic age to be a much longer period, which we know as 40 weekdays right now, not including Sundays, because the people wanted to do it. And that characterized life very early on. And it quickly continued because obviously um, Friday fasting continued for a very long period of time, but Wednesday did as well until around the, um, around the 10th century or so. But very early on, the church understood the purpose of fasting should also be instituted to prepare for major feast days. So major vigils were days of fasting. We had the Ember Days established as days of fasting as continuity with the Old Testament days of fasting around the same period. So fasting was a sense of connecting as well with what was already done in the Old Testament because the Jews fasted as well. In fact, there's actually a Jewish tradition that people uh, would fast on Mondays and Thursdays in honor of Moses going up to the mount and then on honor of it coming down from the mount on the other day. So thus, the, we had these two days that they practiced. We then characterized that into two days as well. And we had these other fasting periods. And the church understood that in order to have an appropriate feast, one must have a fast. You don't just walk into a party and show up. You prepare, you bring things. And thus, to celebrate these sacred days, to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate Easter, even to celebrate the Feast of the Apostles, which used to be Holy Days of Obligation, that went back to... Uh, around the year 932, I believe. All the holy, all the apostles' days were holy days of obligation. So you prepare for these various feast days by fasts of different lengths, of, of different severity, corresponding to the appropriateness of these feast days. So thus, fasting really underscored a practice that really was foundational in Christianity for millennia. And that, that's how we had these sacred days, these sacred times of preparation as well. So these sacred times during our liturgical calendar, you, you're saying that these were just always connected to fasting and abstinence? Yes, so uh, fasting and abstinence really went hand in hand for a long time. Um, so I should say until basically 1741, if a day was a fast day, it was also always a day of complete abstinence. 1741 is the first time in history the notion of it could be a fasting day, but you could have meat possibly on the same day beforehand. If it was fasting, it was always absence. Now there were other days of absence as well. So um, as the you know the time periods went on in the church's history, Friday, which was always a day of fasting, just became a day of absence, and that's what we know it. But for a long time, it was also a day of fasting. The same occurred uh, with Wednesdays as well. It was a day of fasting. And then that one became just a day of absence. And it continued as such until about the 10th century. But some places kept it longer. 
For instance, Ireland uh, kept the fast uh, much longer than others, and basically until the 17th century. So what's the distinction between fasting and abstinence historically? Because today, people would hear, um, you know, during Lent, I, I would hear, well, you know, I'm going to eat a full meal, just one full meal, and not eat anything else. Has, has, has that idea of fasting or abstinence always been a case, or how does this look across time? Well, the practice of the, the, the way of how fasting and how absence have been treated has changed significantly over the church's history. And that has really deteriorated our sense of the sacred as well. So that's a great question you asked. In my book, I actually talk a little bit about it. I have a chart there where I kind of walk through how these different elements basically change over time. But basically, early on in the church, fasting was always a vegetarian meal had after sunset on a fasting day. So after the sun was go down, you could have your one meal. And thus, when your meal was over, then you could continue on. And, and in the very early church, water was not even allowed to be had outside the meal. So you would not be able to drink water during the day. We have testimony from martyrs that they were led to their martyrdom and they would not drink water on the way because it was a fasting day. And they wouldn't break the fast, even in these grueling, extraordinary circumstances really serving as an example for us. But it was always vegetarian meal had in the evening. And about uh, in the 800s, that's when the first notion of, well, you can have this, this really started with the monks, you can have an evening's, you know, a little reprieve. We call that a collation, you know, what we would know as a second smaller meal, really just started as basically just have some wine for extra strength that you spend all your days out in the field. So that was kind of a relaxation. And then that quickly spread to the faithful too. Well, they can have some too. And then it took the characteristic early on as well of, well, it can be a little bit of food, maybe a morsel of bread, a small amount. And then that continued for a long time. And uh, the notion of what absences also changed. So very early on, it was always vegan. So it was not just no meat, no flesh meat of mammals or birds. We're talking about no fish either. Uh, we're talking about uh, no dairy products, nothing that comes out of an animal. It wasn't until the year around 601, St. Gregory the Great, that you could have fish on a day of absence. He really opened that up and changed that. So beforehand, it was there was no exception. But when St. Thomas talks about this in the Summa, by the Middle Ages, we have the situation where the Lenten fast is a little bit different in this characteristic of abstinence than other days because Lent remained a day, uh, a period basically of a vegan fast, whereas the other ones were vegetarian fast. And uh, it wasn't really until the time of St. Alphonsus that you had the notion of what about this second morning snack that we call a frustulum uh, in the church. So that kind of entered around that time. What could you have at that time? Uh, and then that did not become widely used until uh, really the time of Saint of um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and then Saint Pius X really opening up. So the notion of two small meals not equaling a meal is kind of new, actually, because for a long time, if you could go without those extras, go without them. Just have your one meal in the evening, and then the time of the meal also changed. It, it was after sunset for a long period, and then it moved up to three o'clock. Uh, by the Middle Ages, we have it really moving up to about noon. Uh, and then stayed that way for a long time. And then nowadays, there's really no notion of time. But canon law uses speci uh, specified different times. And, and even if you look at the, the Baltimore manual that came out of the Council of Baltimore for Americans around the end of the 1800s, they even legislated how many ounces those collations could be. And moral theologians talked about it as well. If you weighted how much in a collation is eight ounces, they said and a frusulum was two ounces. So there was a lot of care put into what can you eat, 
how much of it, when can you eat it? Um, and there was actually periods of time that uh, it could be, um, well, could it be warm fish or could it be cold fish? There was distinctions of that. And when um, Pope um, Benedict the Fourteenth in seventeen forty one opened up the possibility of partial absence. That is, it's a fast day, but you can have meat at your main meal on this day, but not in the collation. Um, he specifically forbid fish to be consumed at the same meal as meat. It was completely forbidden at the time. So the characteristics of how fasting is practiced has changed a lot. And even though the church has you know, lawfully changed these, the church has authority to change these because Christ himself did not institute it. He gave it to the church to do so. Um, we have lost so much of the care and concern for how do I worthily prepare? We don't want to get too fixated on the rules, but the rules are important if they achieve us the end of growing in sanctity, conquering ourselves. You know, St. Thomas talks about all this fasting and absence is geared towards conquering your own inclinations, offering up worthy penance to God for yourself or for others, raising your mind to contemplate heavenly things. So, so many people in our world today say, oh, I don't have time for prayer. I don't have time for mass. You know, I can't do this. Well, just, just fast more. You have more time in your day. You have more money too. You don't have as much food. You don't have much time to devote to this. So there's so many practical applications too. And that's why I encourage people, don't just learn about it because it's interesting and it's a piece of history that's not taught to us anymore. It has very real implications that if our ancestors did so much for so long to prepare for Sundays and feast days in such a respect, we should do something so too. And remember, we're in a communion of saints, so hopefully they're in heaven right now. They're looking down on us and how shocked they are that our church has virtually no fasting and absence now when it underscored their whole life. Fasting was as integral to them as Sunday Mass was. And we, we might still, you know, uphold Sunday Mass and try to get people to go and go ourselves, of course. But the fasting and absence piece has been lost, and we must rekindle that. Because if you really, you know, uh, tallied up these days, which I try to encourage people to do based on what our forefathers did, you're fasting roughly one-third of the year, and you're abstaining from meat uh, half the year. So, I mean, these are a lot of days because there's a lot the the um, liturgical calendar is so rich with feast days there's so many ways we can prepare so much you know exceptions and things can be said about different countries or so but that's basically the the overarching premise is fasting has kind of deteriorated since really reaching its peak in the very early church by the 600s we have some of those exceptions entering under gregory the great we really have the collation 800s we have times changing in the middle ages characteristics a lot of days of what what days were penance or not changed a lot after the Renaissance when modern man cared less for God and cared more for himself. So we really had a deterioration of days after that. So we didn't just wake up in, you know, 1962 and 1969 and like, well, we had this wonderful fasting life and I just forget about it. It was continually attacked year by year, decade by decade. And people will be like, well, I mean, fasting's hard when you practice it that way. People are like, well, yeah, that's okay. Um, you know, if I want to, I can be a little bit harder like my parents. But your parents' generation was a lot easier than their parents, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the case in every country. So I speak from an American perspective, but I've studied it recently in um, uh, Spain and Spanish territories. I've looked at it as, uh, as well in, in Britain and her colonies, uh, the Philippines, so many other countries as well. The same process, basically, of we need exceptions. You know, life's hard. Give us exceptions. There were exceptions for different people. If you were a Native American, you had totally different days than somebody who was a, Spa a Spaniard, for instance, moving to 
uh, the new world. So your diocese might have differences too. Like in America, there was a patchwork of different dioceses with different regulations. So not only did modern man say this is too hard, people came up with the argument of let's just have uniformity, complete uniformity. So we'll take the lowest common denominator and we'll simply establish that to to be. So you don't have this days of fast day, I do. We'll just take it away. So neither of us do. So that's kind of how we got there. We lose the sacred when you give in to modern man, and then when you give in to the notion of there has to be complete uniformity in all discipline. The hardness of it, that grievance, was it at all attached to people who wanted to be overly scrupulous with fasting? Was there like too high of a standard for people or or was it just more of as technology comes about, um, there is a greater appetite for the easy than it is the difficult. I believe it's that one. Uh, because if you look at uh, what our forefathers did, who's working in the fields all days and they're giving into all this fasting and they're doing the robust form of fasting too. You know, obviously it's vegan at the time, very early on in the church. Many more days are practiced. People are still working out in the heat. But if you look at some of the exceptions granted, uh, especially over the past centuries, people say like, oh, these people are workers. Or these people are in the military. We need to grant them exceptions. And then, for instance, some of these exceptions for sailors or the working man's privilege from 1895 used in the United States and abroad was like, well, these people are, are you know, these are people are laborers. They need to eat more. But, you know, if they're having dinner with their families, we don't want their families to, you know, feel like they're having differences. So let's just give the exception to all the family members, too, at dinner. So that, that was an exception, too. And, and a lot of these were renewed. People latch on to these dispensations and they're like, oh, I have a dispensation. I want it. Why are you taking it away from me? You know, keep it. And people want it to be to be permanent. So you really see that. Uh, you really see that. And unfortunately, if you look at, you know, technology made things a lot easier in the past several centuries. But this is the time of the least amount of fasting. And if you, if you look at it in health consequences, I try to look at in into my book, too. There's so many health con uh, consequences, positive ones of fasting. Uh, so not just the spiritual benefits, not just the mental benefits, but a lot of physical benefits studies have shown of fighting different cancers or, or, or uh, improving blood sugar in so many different ways. And I wonder, too, if part of the collapse of fasting has also led our society to the obesity problem we're in right now, to uh, the increase of cancers, increase of diabetes, so, so many different things. Because people can't master yourself. And our forefathers were taught very much if you master yourself, it's like mastering the whole world. If you can't say no to a hamburger on Friday, how can you say no to serious sin? You know, you have no control. So control and discipline uh, is very instrumental here. Uh, and that was always the case uh, with fasting too. And it, we haven't talked about the Eucharistic fast yet, but a whole second section of my book is devoted just to the Eucharistic fast. And that basically was the same, the exact same until 1951. You know, no water, no food, from midnight until Holy Communion time. So then you start having, oh, well, now you can have some water. We'll change things up. And then a few years later, well, we'll make it three hours, but we really would like you to keep the longer one if you can. Uh, but everybody says, well, I'm only going to do what I need to do. I'm only going to do three hours. I don't, you know, it's nice of you to say you wish I could do more, but I don't, I don't plan to do more. And that's just always what people do. How many people look and say, well, here's what I need to do. Here's what I can do. I'm going to just do what I need to do. It's just something that everybody does. Um, so, and that occur, obviously that occurred before Vatican II as well. So that was Pius XII changing that immemorial practice, really practiced in the East 
and in the West. There were certain exceptions uh, that existed beforehand, obviously viaticum being the main one. So if you're dying, you could still receive Holy Communion if, you, if you've eaten or drank something. Uh, so there was legitimate exceptions too. So some people might get hung up on it. it was just so rigid. This was the only way. There was no exception. That was not the case. There were obviously some exceptions for one reason or the other for truly legitimate needs. But a return to tradition involves not just uh, understanding what days we used to fast and how the characteristic of those days were from fasting and absence and how we can incorporate that. It also involves how can I better observe the Eucharistic fast that my forefathers did? Because part of the desecration of the Eucharist we see now, part of the um, irreverence uh, is, is really due to people's lack of preparation and lack of thanksgiving afterwards. St. Pius X listed all these characteristics of if you do want to receive Holy Communion more often, even daily when he opened it up, these are the just uh, these are the dispensations you should have. And again, it should, so nobody really looks at it. Well, what do I need to do? Okay, I can't be a mortal sin. I need to fast for what they say, one hour now. That's it. They don't look at all the others. So you need to do that. And so many theologians taught as well, you should be praying and um, maybe even fasting for a little while after Holy Communion too, with Thanksgiving. So there's so many elements of fasting that can incorporate us to prepare for and to rediscover that sacred when you really empty out your body so that way you can receive enlightenment you can receive the holy ghost coming upon you obviously and when you're not as concerned with food and digestion and everything the mind is more clear so the history of this is important because we can put it in practice in our daily life it's not just a history lesson i tell people even though i find the history quite fascinating but quite sad too because so much is just people saying, forget about it. You know, it's okay. I'll take an exception over and over and over and over. Um, you really understand the problems we, we come in were really because lack of devotion to people consistently over the centuries. You know, in the very early church, there were people who they would be working in the fields, but they would memorize the Psalms. So that way they could, as the bells go off, join their prayers with the monks who were chanting the divine office. And they would memorize the Psalms so they could say them as they still worked. And, and that practice ended very early on too, because you know, life got hard too. So not just fasting, but prayer went out the window, almsgiving really went out the window. And that's why we have these heroic saints from the Middle Ages. You got St. Dominic and St. Francis being so revolutionary at the time just trying to rekindle this devotion, which was practiced beforehand. I mean, St. Francis uh, was the pioneer uh, and champion behind St. Martin's Lent, the period of fasting from right after Assumption Day to St. Michael's Day. So, and that was just a devotional fast. That was never obligatory. So I don't even have that in my, my list of, you know, a third of the, uh, the year and half of the year. That's not even on there. So that's an extra one. So there's so much more people can voluntarily do, so much more that our... Um, saints can show us, for example. One thing I want to touch on that you mentioned was the spiritual aspect of it as well. You say in your book, The Definitive Guide to Fasting, you talk about St. Basil, saying St. Basil the Great also affirmed the importance of fasting for protection against demonic forces, quoting, the fast is the weapon of protection against demons. Our guardian angels more readily stay with those who have cleansed our souls through fasting. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's something I've even heard priests be quite surprised by because it's never been quoted uh, 
to them before, but that is that is really what St. Basil said. He said that really the, the fast is our weapon and protection against demons because our angels are closer to us really in proportion to to our fasting. And if you look at it, it's also because what our Lord himself did. He said, remember, that some demons are driven out only by prayer and fasting. So he's connecting fasting to the driving out of demons. He gave the apostles an example when they had power to cast out devils, but they couldn't do so some of the time. And they asked why. And he said, some demons are driven out only by prayer and fasting. And obviously our blessed Lord, who is sinless, who is perfect, who is God himself, he fasted. He didn't have to fast in, in, in order to open up his mind to receive heavenly things. He's God. He didn't have to fast in reparation for sin. He has none. He didn't have to fast in order to conquer any sort of vices. He has none. But he did it for our example. So he really gave the apostles and his successors and us the example. So if he, the master, who has no need for penance, does it, who are we to say that we won't? And it is believed uh, piously that when it says that he fasted, 40 days, he ate literally nothing because he was God. So he was able to sustain himself on nothing. But so many saints and, and hermits and desert fathers would strive to go by as little as possible in some of these fasting periods. So I wouldn't encourage people to jump right in. Find a, find a way to what's traditional fasting like maybe a few decades ago and then work your way back perhaps. I encourage people to do this with the online uh, fasting group that I run uh, called the Fellowship of St. Nicholas on 1peter5.com um, backslash fast. So we have people who support each other. So you obviously don't want to be like St. Francis who, um, you know, famously was, was taken to an island one Lent and he brought two loaves of bread and he only ate half of one loaf. So if that's your idea of fasting, you know, only bread and water, only a little water, that's not correct because you can have one meal vegetarian, you know, in the evening. That's a great way to get into fasting. You don't want to go too hard because that's like, you know, sitting on your couch your whole life, you can get up and you're like, I'm going to go run a marathon now. Well, no, you're not. You're never going to finish. You know, you're going to injure yourself on the way. You're going to give up. You're going to say this is horrible. You're going to get up and you're going to prepare for harder and harder fasting um, using our Lord's example. And prayer obviously needs to be foundational too. But the Lord himself said demons are driven out by prayer and fasting. So we have to have both prayer and fasting and almsgiving as well. So if you're fasting a lot, you're not praying more. You're doing it wrong. It is not a diet. You know, you might have health benefits, and you probably will. Uh, most people do, uh, who, who obviously do more robust fasting. They're going to lose weight, for instance, and a lot of people in society now need to. But that does not mean that is the purpose for which we do it. We do it in order to master ourselves, to give honor to God, to raise our mind. And the Lord himself taught us this. And as I mentioned in the very uh, beginning of my book, it goes back to the beginning. The very first commandment of God to Adam and Eve was fasting and abstinence. Don't eat of the fruit of this tree. And they gave into it. And then they ate it. And then because of that, sin entered the world. Um, so it all goes back to the beginning. And we can see if we really want to master ourselves, we should understand what the church teaches, how fasting has changed, and how we can do much more than the minimum. And, and our forefathers did so very willingly for a very long period of time. So it's not just um, it's not just something that we can make up on our own. We have a robust history of fasting, which has unfortunately been very forgotten, but I'm trying to help rediscover it and teach people so that we know what we can do to really uh, make progress on rediscovering that sacred and re-implementing it in our own lives. Because to, to sanctify ourselves, we need fasting. So we talk about making things sacred again, you are a vessel of the Holy Ghost. So how can you make yourself more sacred to be a better vessel? 
through prayer and fasting and good works, you know, and becoming more pleasing to God to, to wish, you know, thy will be done more and more so that we grow in charity and we increase the, our will for God's charity to grow. And, and fasting is a really effective means for this. That's why the church has legislated it at times, encourages it. And that's why the saints and our Lord himself really practiced it. Thank you for those points about self-discipline and this, this theology of the bare minimum, which um, is, is, I think, one of the reasons why we're in this position is just this loss of the sacred. But I want you to talk for a moment just about other religions, um, because I won't include Protestantism in with this question because I, I don't really con I consider that more of an anti-religion than a religion. So, but when we look at Jews, they, they seem to have maintained, they don't fast much. They, but they seem to have maintained at least their six days of fasting. I think they have two major feast days and um, two or two minor and four major feast days in which they are still called a fast. And that doesn't seem to have changed for, for quite a while. Muslims, you know, they have their, their Ramadan. Um, but when it comes to Catholics, um, as you so well articulated that it just seems to have been fluid for, for quite a while. But would you say that Jews and Muslims, are they more disciplined than Catholics? Do they have more self-control or can you make, is there any contrast there that you can make? No, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, so that's a good question. So the, the really the underscore behind this and that has to be understood is fasting and absence are disciplined, so they can be changed. So thus lawful authority can change them. Whereas maybe some other religions look at certain days of fasting as set in stone by God himself versus by those he appointed. So there is no possibility of change them should he not, you know, come down and and order them to be changed. But if we look at Jewish fasting in particular, I talked about there was a pious tradition of Mondays and Thursdays in some in some Jewish circles. Um, there was also those six days you referenced uh, in Judaism where there were there were different fasts for different periods. The strictest one was Yom Kippur. Uh, but that if you look at how Judaism has changed, really with the destruction of the temple, and you have rabbinical Judaism. Uh, you have the blasphemous Talmud coming out, you know, and the religion being totally changed, really, because you have no temple, so you can't have worship. So they made really a new religion called Judaism. But it's really, if you look at it, and you compare it, it's it's totally not the same. It doesn't even look the same. You know, they don't even worship the same. Um, and and I think that's why there actually are some Jewish groups in the world who want to bring back the temple and offer sacrifice because they say, like, this is not real Judaism. If I look at what Jewish worship is, this is not it. But that being said, most Jews today really don't fast at all. They don't even really fast on Yom Kippur. That's really the only day uh, that would be fasting still. So they have experienced uh, a deterioration uh, of fasting as well. Um, but, uh, you know, fasting is practiced in many different uh, religions. There might be one I can think of that doesn't do it. Maybe it's the Sheik one. Uh, but but, but verse, virtually, you know, everyone legislates it in some respect. Um, but if we look at, you know, the Islamic fast, they say that, you know, legislated by God, you know, for those days, you know, through a prophet. So that's why that's kind of established and there's no change there. But there, but there are, you know, certain exceptions, you know, if somebody's ill or traveling, they don't have to fast those days. They make up the day later. So it's also 
Um, there's a lot of like I talk about, you know, from obviously the Catholic perspective of a lot of different um, exceptions and dispensations or so. That's also the case with other things, too. So, for instance, in Judaism, um, you know, a Jew would not be able to touch a dead person because they would defile themselves. So there's a lot of concern over that. So that's why, like, you know, we think it's such a great work of mercy to pray for the dead and to bury the dead. And they would not do it because they think it, you know, defiles them. So. There, there's some aspect there with um, so some of the things we do really go well beyond uh, uh, what what they do as well. Um, but I don't think that's any lack of discipline. I think just modern man has become very secularized and he just does not see really with any religion. If you look at any religion practice, less and less people in that are fasting. Even if they're told to, you have to do that day. They're not doing it as much. Because this is part of the the growing secularism we see in the world is really attacking uh, all uh, peoples, too. So um, it's really an uphill battle to get anybody to do discipline right now. Um, But hopefully, you know, we can do so with, of course, the intercession of the saints, because so many saints who are in heaven has such robust fasting and such hard lives. Look at St. Patrick, how he fasted. If you read his stories of he stayed up basically all nights fasting and how he would pray all the Psalms, all 150 a night uh, to, to prepare himself. And a third of them, he would do genuflecting. A third of them, he would kneel in water to say, um, and then he would fast all night for this. Or if you look at like um, Garcia Marino, the famous uh, president of Ecuador, who famously was murdered by the Freemasons uh, outside the cathedral. He was a great champion of fasting too, that he was on, you know, uh, walking, um, all around his areas in, in Ecuador and they had no food. And one day it was a Friday, they stopped in the camp and everybody was starving and they only had chickens there. And he said he would rather die than eat chicken on Friday because it's forbidden. So they would not be eating that. So, so there was so much people and examples we have gone before us who said, I will absolutely refuse to do this. Not because God has legislated this a fasting absence, but because the church who's quite legitimately in the place of God for us and has the power and the keys to do that, has the authority. And to do this, I would offend God and I would commit a mortal sin. I will not put my soul in jeopardy because my soul is obviously more important. Thanks for bringing that up. Just that global modernistic modernity, this decline in the appetite to fast, how it's affected all people. Um, Uniquely to Catholics, because obviously we have the path, we have the access that that Christ has given us. We have these saints, as you said, who have shown us the way that we know what works, yet we choose not to do what works. And even we have um, a church that is calling us to just the the bare minimums. And I wanted to ask you, so with all this together, like what have we lost Along, what would you say we've lost along the way with with this declining appetite, with this this call to the bare minimum? What has clearly we lost a deeper sense of the sacred, but what else has been lost along the way? Would you say? Well, there's a lot. The sense of I need to make restitution for my sins and those of others, because fasting was was instrumental for that. If you look at old prayer cards who mention uh, indulgences, you know, 300 days, 500 days, those would essentially be the equivalent of 500 days of fasting. So 300 days of fasting, a year of fasting. So all of that was really meant to tie it into fasting. So we, we've lost the sense of restitution. Uh, we've lost the, um, 
the sense of uh, mastering yourself. So, I mean, I think the proliferation of sin in the world is also because people can't say no. Um, and then you look at, you know, all these people from a secular perspective, they just can't lose weight. They just give into all these fad diets and, you know, oh, I'll lose weight if I'll eat this one thing here cooked in a weird way and order this special product. And you just say, no, if you want to lose weight, you don't eat, you know, but, but people can't say no. So, and, and then the same thing with sin, you know, like, oh, this is a sin. I just, no, I can't, I just, you know, I'm going to give in, I mean, I commit, and then people commit adultery here. They give into contraception here. They give into all these uh, sins because they can't say no. So we, we've, we've lost that as well. We, we've lost the preparation for the feast days. We've lost the harmony that comes into liturgical year, the rhythm and rhyme of fasting days and feasting days. And we understand heaven too uh, ha has different holy days as well. So we look forward to that one day. So um, if, if we really want to celebrate here with the communion of the saints, our own liturgical calendar and the various feast days, there has to be fasting days. Because without fasting, you can't have a proper feast. Um, so there's a lot that's been lost, you know. Um, it really underscored our life, you know, since the very early church. The apostles themselves legislated fasting uh, and abstinence. So there has never been a time in Christianity. And that's uh, when there has been fasting and abstinence. And that's why a lot of the heirs of the Protestants are so grievous, not just in terms of, you know, predestination or you know, sola scriptura or, or any of those things. But if you look at attacks on penance, like Zwigli, what he did is he would have sausage eating contests on Fridays in Lent, uh, total blasphemy, really, uh, attacking penance, attacking the need for penance, attacking the need for you can do good works uh, in the state of grace and gain merit and make restitution for sin. He attacked all of that by doing that. So um, Satan attacks what's effective. And he's attacked fasting and abstinence significantly because, as you mentioned with St. Basil, fasting and abstinence can really help us overcome demons and can help us win uh, the battle, really, that we're in, uh, not just uh, for the church and for the world, but for our own selves, for your own soul. So um, people naturally should be on the lookout for if, if you feel called to fast, and you should, um, if you're getting, like, oh, I don't know about this, I don't know about that, that's too hard, those might be not just legitimate concerns, those might be demonic influences to, to stop you. All right, so as we as we wrap up this catechesis, this cate boop. as we wrap up this catechesis and instruction with Matthew Pleasy, I have one more question I want you to ask, to ask you. And the point that you made about how the the world's just been affected by people not being self-disciplined. One thing that just immediately came to mind was just like this addiction that a lot of men and women have with pornography and how I always tell people that if you want, if we want the world to be truly a better place, it's, it's not, a, it's not a policy that we can pass. It's not something we can vote on. It's not some sort of new program. It's just holiness. More holy people sin, you know, more holy people is going to be less sin less sin there is it just it just makes it a better world and i think i'm convinced obviously that you know fasting is, is a key to that but i want you to comment on that that what moving forward in this in our desire to just return to just the true sense of the sacred how would how do you connect fasting with us 
moving forward and in having the world become influencing the world to become a place of less sin. Well, if you think about it, every sin is an attack against Almighty God. It's an infinite attack on Him. And I like to remind people the only thing God can't do is sin. He can do anything else He wants. So many other religions say God couldn't do this, or He can't do that. God can do anything He wants because He's got the only thing He can't do is offend Himself. Because if He does it, it's not offensive. So He can do anything else but sin. So thus, sin is an attack on Almighty God. Uh, we know this. And sin requires restitution. Just like we talk about if you were to damage somebody's property, you'd have to commit restitution. Um, so, but not just you. Society has to commit this, this restitution as well. So my sins and your sins and the sins of everybody listening and the sins of the entire world are basically in a scale. And restitution must be made for God who created the world, who is offended by these. Our fasting, our prayers can make up some of that restitution. So think about the debt right now that's owed to God by the world. We talk about national debt. We talk about all these things in economics. We know we talked about the burden of sin, which is currently weighing down on the world. That has to, we have to have restitution there. So making ourselves holy, to not sin more going forward, and to make restitution for this sin. And thus we can continue to grow in holiness and really permeate that grace and holiness in others. I think that not just from, um, from prayer and good works and scripture readings and reception sacraments, but fasting has to influence that. Um, some of the saints said they were absolutely, um, they'd be absolutely horrified if people were coming to mass regularly, but they're, they were coming there full, already having eaten so much. So, you know, to actually open yourself. I mean, St. John Chrysostom actually was accused once of giving Holy Communion somebody who did not observe the Eucharistic fast. And he actually responded back in a letter, and he's like, if I'm guilty of such a thing, I am not worthy to be a bishop. Strike my name out. You know, I will leave this office. I will resign everything because I would never do such a thing. So we think about that being so, you know, minimal. You know, if this is a discipline, it can simply be changed. Um, but remember, fasting and absence bind mortally. So if, if, uh, if you voluntarily sin against them, you commit a mortal sin. So we, we have to observe these, um, and, and we do so willingly too, in order to grow in holiness, because we model ourselves on our Lord, and obviously on the saints who followed him very closely. They had robust lives of fasting. If they have done so and they have less sins, who are we not to, who need to do greater restitution, uh, not just for ourselves, but for the world we're in. So to make the world holy, to make the world more sacred, there has to be more fasting. And once there is more fasting, then there can be more prayer and there are more almsgiving too. The three legs of the stool of Lent should not just be for Lent, it's for all of our lives, it's the model. That's the great pinnacle of penance during Lent. That's a real time to intensify it, but that is not the only time to perform fasting. Just like it would be absurd to say, well, we pray more in Lent. That's not the only time to pray. You don't only pray in Lent, you pray all year long. You do almsgiving all year long. So fasting should never be relegated to one time of the year. And absence should not just be on Fridays. There's so many more days that were obligatory for so long. We have the model. It just, you have to do it. And I think God calls many of you and many of us to do that, to pick up the gauntlet and say, I care enough about the faith. So many people don't. I will voluntarily observe other days. I will now observe Saturdays as days of absence or and or I will observe Wednesdays as days of absence or I will observe all of Lent as days of fasting and all of Advent as days of fasting like it used to be. So there's so much you can do. I talk about it in my book with recommendations. 
so many periods, but that's how you become sacred. You pick up the gauntlet and you say, God calls me to do it. God himself fasted. Who am I that I should exempt myself? Mr. Matthew Pleasy, thank you for this catechesis and instruction about how fasting connects to our return to the sacred. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.